Tremendous Upside features real talk about mental health. Today, we will also talk about sexual assault and feeling suicidal. I want you to know that before we get into it. Oh, Flurry's got to be careful. Calder ran at him. Flurry's getting the attention of everybody on the Hawks. Flurry's taking his gloves off. He threw a right. Let him go. Flurry's got a... Watch any video of Theo Fleury when he was in the NHL, and you'll see three things. He's fast, he's 5'6", and he's aggressive. You'll see him fighting guys way bigger than him. I had this chip on my shoulder for many, many years, you know, that small man syndrome. And so, you know, that's probably the biggest obstacle that I had to overcome. He played over a 1,000 games in 15 NHL seasons, most of them with the Calgary Flames. And he was going through a lot that fans couldn't see on the ice. I have anxiety. I have depression. I'm a hypochondriac. I think I'm going to die. I'm Shamiqua Holtzclaw. From American Public Media, it's Tremendous Upside. Real talk with athletes about mental health. Today, we got Theo Fleury. He's won the Stanley Cup and an Olympic gold medal. But before all that success, he experienced years of trauma. You know, I, what I was left with was a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lot of resentment, a lot of anger. And, uh, you know, there really wasn't anybody that I could tell at that time. And so, you know, I carried this around for the majority of my life, um, dealing with this uh, secret. Theo buried that secret, that trauma, and tried to block out anything that wasn't hockey. But burying trauma never makes it go away. We talked about what it takes to finally face it. Here's me and Theo. First of all, uh, Theo, let's start with your childhood. Can you talk about where you grew up and what your family was like? For sure. Both of my parents... Uh, experienced uh, childhood trauma in their life, and uh, that manifested itself into addictions. And my dad was an alcoholic, and my mom was a prescription pill addict. And so I grew up in a home that was uh, chaos, violence, arguing, fighting pretty much constantly, uh, you know, my whole entire childhood. And so but what was really cool was when, as a five-year-old, I discovered this really cool game called hockey. And uh, the the arena, you know, became my happy place. And everything that I wasn't getting at home, every time I stepped into a rink, I got everything that I was lacking at home. Friends and love and got taught all these incredible lessons about respect and teamwork and, and all that. And so... You know, I uh, gravitated towards that and spent the majority of my childhood either, you know, in an arena or on a baseball field. I always say, like, for me, finding the game of basketball, it, it, I describe it the same as my safe ha haven, my um, coping mechanism. That's where I put, like, all my energy um, in, into to, to try to uh, es escape. But along the way, you know, I, I know my grandmother was a, a great mentor and, you know, I met coaches and, and, and people in my life who um, helped me. So did you have any people in your life that kind of helped you, you know, get involved? Yeah, no question. When I was six years old, I had moved to this little town in 
in uh, Canada and Manitoba called Russell, Manitoba. Population, about 1,500 people. And when I got there, it just so happened that the 13 best athletes in this little town that I'd moved to were all six years old, were all my age. And not only that, we had three incredible, amazing fathers uh, who became our coaches and became our mentors and taught us these incredible lessons that, uh, you know, I hold very near and dear to my heart today. And, uh, you know, I was very blessed. 13, you know, sets of parents that looked after me, made sure I was fed, uh, had clothes, had hockey equipment, paid for my fees, you know, all those things. Theo loved hockey as a kid. It was his thing. But someone used that to hurt him. And I was a, you know, a phenom hockey player as a young boy. And so scouts would start to come and and watch me play. And uh, when I was 14 years old, I got drafted uh, in the Western Hockey League. So it's, it's similar to college, I guess it would be. I got picked in the second round by the Winnipeg Warriors. And so the summer after I got drafted, this Graham James guy came to my house and sat me and my parents around the kitchen table and basically said, you know, we think Theo needs better competition, you know, and better coaching. And so we'd like him to move to Winnipeg and we'll get him a great place to live and put him in a good school. And every day after school, he can practice, you know, with the big team. And my parents knew right from day one what I wanted to do, so they didn't hold me back. And so I moved to Winnipeg when I was 15 years old. And needless to say, that choice and that decision would change me for the rest of my life because over the next two and a half years, Graham raped me 150 times uh, over a two and a half year period. And so, you know, what I was left with was a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lot of resentment, a lot of anger, and, uh, you know, there really wasn't anybody that I could tell at that time. And so, you know, I carried this around for the majority of my life, um, dealing with this uh, secret. This abuse Theo's describing, he didn't talk about it publicly until he was in his 40s. The guy, Graham James, eventually went to prison for sexually assaulting Theo and other boys. He's out on parole now. I've read a quote from your book, and I'm going to repeat it to you. Your quote was, the direct result of being abused was that I became a fucking raging alcoholic lunatic. He destroyed my belief system. The most influential adult in my life at the time was telling me that what I thought was wrong was right. I no longer had faith in myself or my own judgment you know, if you could just uh, elaborate, you know, throughout your, your journey, how that abuse really um, showed itself, how it, it affected you. Well, we all know about addiction. And uh, once you cross the line, you know, your addiction never gets better. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And then, you know, you start to add hard drugs in there. And then it's a pretty fast trip to the bottom of the gutter and you know, that's where I ended up. Um, I know in my case, when I'm dealing with all these, dealing with the trauma and things, you know, we both were incredible uh, athletes and able to, you know, do our job and our respected uh, sports. Um, can you please, you know, just really tell people how you were able to, to, to balance that and not let it really affect your play? 
Well, I sort of subscribe to the Malcolm Gladwell theory of 10,000 hours. And so, you know, when I was a kid and I wasn't at school, I was at the rink, skating, shooting, passing, skating, shooting, passing, you know, over and over and over again. And so from the time I was five years old until I left to go pursue my professional hockey career, you know, I put in those 10,000 hours. So when I stepped on the ice, I never had to think because I trained myself to basically react. I basically trained and hardwired my, you know, my nervous system, my brain, all that stuff to react. And, and I think that's what made me a great player. And I, and I obviously love to compete. I competed at a level that, you know, not a lot of people are able to achieve or get to. And so all of these intangibles, you know, that I had, uh, like I said, when I stepped on the ice, you know, it was like magic. Theo played through his addictions for a long time. There was a lot of alcohol and a lot of drugs while he played season after season. He was making all-star teams, but he was also getting into fights off the ice. Stuff that got him in trouble with the league. He spent 11 seasons with the Calgary Flames. Then it was Colorado, then New York. There, things really broke down. The NHL had doctors meet with him and tell him to go to rehab a couple of times. He made it to the 2002 Olympics and won a gold medal on Team Canada, but he was stuck in this cycle. He played part of the season with the Chicago Blackhawks, got into more trouble with drugs and booze and fights. He was suspended and ordered to treatment. But this time, he didn't go. So his NHL career was over. He'd been running from his trauma for years at this point, just focusing on hockey. But now, he didn't have the game to distract him. He picked up and moved far away from everything. You know, I was living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, of all places, and I basically just went there to die. That's why I was there. Every single person that loved and cared about me was completely out of my life. I was living there by myself. I had a 6,000 square foot house on two Jack Nicholas golf courses in one of the most beautiful settings probably in the world, in the middle of the Sando de Cristo mountains, and, and I was completely there alone. My drug dealer was in Albuquerque, and I would drive back and forth from Albuquerque, picking up drugs and bringing them home and staying up for a week at a time. And, yeah, just absolute, complete and utter insanity, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Wow. Uh, and, and, you know, what was really interesting was in my house, the master bedroom was on the top level. And so I had a deck outside of my bedroom and I could see Roswell, New Mexico from my deck of my house. So every night I would see the spaceships land and take off and, or so I thought anyways. So it was, it was crazy, 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 crazy. You know, my life uh, became completely unmanageable. You know, I got to the point where I couldn't drink enough, I couldn't snort enough, I couldn't sleep with enough women. And, you know, that was sort of the proverbial rock bottom. And uh, 16 years ago, I had a fully loaded pistol in my mouth ready to pull the trigger and end my life. And 
not because I wanted to die, but because I was completely exhausted from living in emotional pain and suffering for the majority of my life. And I tried everything on the planet to get rid of, you know, this feeling that I had. And uh, I was able to take that gun and throw it into the desert. And I chose to live. And But <laughs> uh, I have no idea how to live life on life's terms. And so I had to change absolutely every single thing about my life and choose a path of healing and uh, do the work. If you ever feel the way that Theo did that time, I want you to know you're not alone and I want you to get help. Text HOME to 741-741 or call 1-800-273-8255. We'll be right back. Tremendous Upside is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. We have real conversations about mental health on this show. That's so important to do because not enough people are talking about this stuff, and it's serious. The good news is that people can and do get better. They get help. That's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. It can be an awkward conversation, but makeitok.org is full of information you can use, like what to say or not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitok.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. We're back. Okay, Theo just told us he knew he had to do the work. So I used to go to this 12-step men's group every Wednesday and it was held in this guy's backyard. It was just a, an amazing uh, meeting. And there was this old biker, his name was Jack, just a beautiful man. He was handsome. He had long white hair and he was tanned and muscular and he had the permanent whiskey, whiskey voice. And I, I remember I was having a cigarette outside after a meeting and, uh, he came up to me and he said, how are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, I'm not doing good. And I said, I'm barely hanging on. And. And then he said, uh, how are you doing with your higher power stuff? And I was like, it's not happening, you know? And then he said, you know, do you realize in this program that you get to pick your own God? And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> you know, because I had no concept of what that even meant. And he said, yeah, he says, you, you get to pick, you know, your own God. And so the night before I got sober, I was in a washroom on my hands and knees and I was crying and I, I knew I was going to die at some point if I kept going down the same road. And so I remembered having this conversation with Jack. So I had it out with, you know, the big guy upstairs and I said, I realize that you only give me as much as I can handle. I said, I'm full. And I said, you can't put one more thing on my plate. This is it. And, you know, at the end of the conversation, I said, you know, please, 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 God, take away the obsession to drink and do drugs. And I went to bed and the next morning I woke up and I had to, uh, walk by this mirror on my way to the, to the washroom. And as I was, 
you know, rubbing the sleep out of my eyes, you know, I glanced into the mirror and I stopped dead in my tracks and I was actually staring at myself in the mirror. And I can't remember the last time, you know, I actually stared at myself in the mirror because I was so full of shame and so full of guilt and all these things. And so I stared at myself for like, I don't even know, probably 40, 45 minutes. And finally, at the end of that, I was like, holy shit, like my prayer has been answered. And that was September 18th of 2005. And I haven't had a drink or a drug since that episode. And I really believe it's because I truly surrendered the night before. And I asked God to take away whatever he needed to take away. And, uh, you know, he answered my prayer and that really started that journey and that path of, uh, you know, trying to figure this all out so that I could live with some peace and some happiness and some joy and love and, you know, all those things that I was fighting against, uh, you know, for many years. Theo got sober at 37, decades after his trauma began. Part of his healing involved his heritage. I was reading that you're um, of Métis descent. Um, can you talk about the racism you endured um, and how you dealt with that? Well, you know, Métis is a mixture of uh, European descent and Aboriginal. And so, you know, my skin color is white. And so I didn't face a whole lot, but I, but I did see it and I did experience it off and on. And so I was never one of those guys that got him you know, involved in it. You know, I didn't listen to the noise because I knew it was a reflection of them and not a reflection of me. And uh, while I was playing uh, senior hockey on an Aboriginal community in Northern Alberta, and most of my teammates were, you know, Aboriginal guys. And, you know, a lot of our fans would travel with us and, and how they treated us as a team and treated, you know, our fans was absolutely despicable. And I couldn't believe that in a country like ours, who's, who we're incredibly diverse, we have people from all over the world that come to Canada to seek out a better life. And, and, uh, the first nations people, you know, are the most discriminated against. And, uh, you know, I was appalled and really hurt by, you know, how people treated, uh, you know, the First Nations people. And because and, I'd played for my country 10 times and, you know, I was embarrassed that, you know, we had this kind of racism to the First Nations communities. And so, yeah, I, I was fed up by the time I finished that experience. Right. So sometimes, like you said, when you were experienced, uh, you know, some of the discrimination that the people of Metis descent has, the indigenous people, you know, sometimes when you're younger, you don't see like the impact and the change that you can make and, you know, using your voice and um, advocating for them. Can you explain uh, about that later on in, in life? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the process of healing is, you know, body, mind, and spirit, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to get all three of these things, you know, living in harmony. And so these people gave me back my life spiritually, and I started to participate in their ceremonies and, you know, use all these amazing spiritual tools uh, that have been left behind by the grandfathers and the grandmothers and, and the creator. And... uh 
I can tell you that my life went to another level and went to another dimension uh, when I fully grasped onto the spirituality part of of this whole healing, whole entire healing process, and and so because of that, I became this leader in the Aboriginal community because I I was participating in ceremonies like sweat lodge and going to powwows and going to sun dances and and all this stuff and really learning about spirituality and and so you know I'm an honorary chief uh, now I'm a pipe carrier it's been an incredible uh, experience and and uh, it's funny when because I work with a lot of addicts and alcoholics and you know one of the first questions i always ask is i say where where are you spiritually and you know nine times out of ten they don't have an answer because you know they are uh, you know they're not there and they've really never looked at that aspect of uh of you know their life yet you know that spirituality i believe is one of the most important factors when it comes to healing is that you know you have to at some point, surrender and turn your will and your life over the care of, you know, whatever you want to call it, Allah, Buddha, Jehovah, whatever the hell you want to call it, and realize that, you know, there's somebody else driving the bus here and it isn't me. Like me, Theo is a mental health advocate now. He's thought a lot about mental health, addiction, trauma. He co-authored a book about everything he's gone through called Playing With Fire. When the book came out, that was the first time Theo said publicly that he had been raped. In the book, he explains how that trauma never left him. We have the highest awareness around the subject of mental health and addiction. But on the other side of the coin, we have the highest suicide rates in the history of our planet. So why is all of this awareness not being turned into action and getting people well? Well, it's because we haven't created a safe space to talk about trauma because trauma is the catalyst for all of these mental health issues and addiction issues. And I struggled with addiction for many, many years until I wrote that book and talked about my trauma and talked about what happened. And so I was able to take all my pain and suffering, put it on paper and put it back out into the universe. And what it came back as was courage and strength is what came back after I was able to release all of this pain and all of this suffering and all of, you know, this confusion and all this stuff. And so I spend the majority of my life now encouraging people to talk about the trauma because until we unpack our trauma history, we are going to always continue to struggle with mental health and we are always going to struggle with addiction if we don't unpack our trauma history. Theo gives talks on this now. Here he is at TEDx Vancouver. How do we rewire all of this trauma? that we have in our life. Well, the first thing we have to do is we have to forgive. We have to forgive. We have to forgive. And the first person we have to forgive is ourself. Right? Wasn't our fault. Wasn't your fault. Right? The famous scene in Goodwill Hunting. Wasn't your fault. And it wasn't until I unpacked all of my trauma history that I was able to, you know, string 
day after day after day after day of sobriety. And that's what I try to tell people every time I'm out there talking is that, you know, there is no magic pill because I've tried them all. Oh, definitely. <laughs> you know, I've tried them all and, and th they have not invented one yet where my mental health is going to go away or my addiction issues are going to go away. I got to do the work and it's hard work and it's not a lot of fun sometimes, but if you do the work, those symptoms will slowly start to subside because my old toolbox was filled with alcohol, drugs, food, sex, gambling, all of these addictions were, that's what I used to, to deal with my mental health. And, and so, you know, I just changed, I just got a different toolbox and, and, you know, that's meditation, that's exercise, that's talking to people, helping people. So it's just, it's acquiring a new toolbox. And at the end of the day, helping is healing. And the more people I've helped, the more I've healed myself. And it's, it's that simple. Yeah, we both give a lot of ourselves. And like you said, it, it helps with our healing process also. But what's one thing you do to take care of yourself? For me, I know it's a, it's a good old workout and, and I meditate like every day. What's your one thing? I play golf. Golf, man, you mm -hmm. you have patience. I'm oh, yeah. I'm an awful golfer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but to, for me, it's it's like meditation because the only thing I have to concentrate on is hitting the ball in the middle of the club face every single time. And so if I focus in on that, I don't have to think about anything else. And I'm outside, and you know, my two boys play golf. You know, that's what we sort of do to bond is, you know, we spend a lot of time on the golf course together and my dad comes out two or three times a week to, to play golf with us too. So, you know, I just love it. And uh, it's something that keeps me sane <laughs> for the most part. It took Theo a long time to deal with his childhood trauma. And while he buried it, he suffered a lot. Getting help is crucial. We need to keep talking about mental health. That's what this show is about. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time with Olympic runner Susie Favor Hamilton. I make it to 100 meters to go, and a runner passes me. Another one passes me. The third one passes me. There's no Olympic medal. And that was devastating. I'm, I'm the worst failure in the entire world. When these girls passed me, I told myself, just fall. It was such a split second. There was no thinking before that I was gonna fall, and I just did it. Tremendous Upside is a production of American Public Media. I'm your host, Shamiqua Holsclaw. John Moe created the show. Phyllis Fletcher is our editor. Producers include Chrissy Pease, Tracy Mumford, and Christina Lopez. Our recording engineer is Sean Campbell. Veronica Rodriguez mixed this episode. Our theme song is by Riley Mackin. Tremendous Upside is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting a conversation can be awkward, 
Make It Okay has tips on what to say or not to say. It has stories of hope from people who have been there. You can take the pledge to Make It Okay at makeitokay.org. Again, if you or someone you know needs someone to talk to, trained volunteers are available. You can text the word HOME to 741-741 or call 1-800-273-TALK. Any time of the day, someone's there and it's free. 